Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When you think about jazz music, what comes to mind? Is it a dimly lit room filled with a quiet crowd focused on the trio performing on stage? Or do you see a concert hall with a big band blasting out classics from the likes of Count Basie or Duke Ellington? Whatever your vision, jazz has deep roots here in Nashville. This year, Jazzy 88 WFSK-FM celebrates 50 years of bringing jazz to Nashville's airwaves. Later this hour, we'll hear how Jazzy 88 got its start and talk with multiple generations of jazz musicians about the genre's legacy and future in Music City. But first, Williamson County has become the center of Republican political power in the state. Governor Bill Lee, Senator Marsha Blackburn, and State Senate Majority Leader Jack Johnson all live there. It's also one of the wealthiest counties in the U.S. In recent years, it has also become a hotbed for far-right politics. Matt Masters is a reporter with the news and contributor with the Nashville scene. He wrote about this shift as a part of this week's cover story package in the scene, and he joins me now. Matt, thanks for being here. Welcome back to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. Um, So, you know, in your article, you write about how the concentration of not just Republican power, but far-right ideologies is gaining traction there. Break break that down for us. What are some examples of those far-right beliefs showing up in Williamson County? So there's, um, I've been covering Williamson County now for uh, going on four years, um, and that's uh, everything I've experienced in those four years has kind of been put in this. And some of that, uh, especially with 2020, um, following the murder of George Floyd, the protests um, that we saw nationwide, we saw those in Williamson County, we saw a lot of pushback um, from the public, um, a lot of just not nice things said and, and kind of threats throughout the community at, at, at people who were protesting. We've seen a recent uh, kind of change in leadership within the uh, local Republican Party there, um, which has uh, been kind of characterized as a, as a takeover um, from some of the uh, more establishment people in the party um, who see this as a, a further push to the right. Um, you write about a moment in 2021 where a public debate about face masks in schools became unruly. Tell us more about what happened there. So at that uh, Williamson County School Board meeting, uh, there were taking up whether a mask should be uh, required for students in elementary school. Um, there were hundreds of protesters who showed up, um, many anti-mask, anti-vax um, people within the community, people from outside of the community. Um, there was a, a huge public debate. There was public comment section um, where people were speaking out um, for and against the mask. Um, but it kind of devolved into a a chaotic moment uh, and had a bunch of people who were kicked out of the meeting. And those people um, who were yelling and and threatening people stayed outside of of the the building and were, you know, literally threatening parents uh, who were leaving who they didn't agree with. Um, Are threats and intimidation commonplace there? You know, I have seen it. I I haven't seen it from, uh, you know, really elected officials are key players. There's a lot of good people in the community, a lot of good organizations, people on all sides of the political aisle, but I have definitely seen it. I've been threatened myself um, over the years with kind of vague threats of, 
intimidation and or violence. Um, I've seen that in Williams County. I've seen that in Davidson County. I've seen that in Rutherford. So it, it does occur, um, but it's not really people you know and not really people who necessarily know me. It's just kind of an anti-media or mm. that mm. type of idea. Now, schools and school boards have become really politicized. One person you write about is Robin Steenman, who is the chair of a group called Williamson Fa Families and also the Williamson County Chapter Chair of Moms for Liberty, which was recently named an extremist group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. What, what can you tell us about her involvement in these groups? She's really leading a lot of the efforts um, within Williamson County to to rally people um, on the right. Um, there's a lot of fears uh, about everything from uh, or perceived fears of LGBTQ people and issues or uh, books and contents in schools. Kind of the same thing that we're seeing all over the country uh, with the Moms for Liberty group. But she's really leading the charge here locally. Um, and she believes that she and her organization will see a lot more uh, engagement with the local party um, following the, the Williamson County GOP change in leadership. Um, and, you know, she's kind of everywhere. You talked about this change in leadership. How have the Republican political leaders, how have they responded to this rise in far-right ideology? Some of them um, have, again, classified this as a takeover. Um, some people have, uh, prior to some of the elections that occurred that, that caused that change in leadership, um, there was several people who left the local party uh, right before that, saying that there wasn't going to be a fair election uh, within the party, um, allegations of fraud. Um, it's kind of in disarray right now. Uh, it's not really clear exactly where it stands, being that the change is so new. Mm. Um, but they're definitely fierce. So, you know, not everyone in Williamson County is following the far right. What did people who have different political beliefs say to you about this? I've heard a lot of fears and concerns from people who um, consider themselves more progressive. But I've also heard those concerns um, from people who consider themselves Republicans, who consider themselves moderate uh, conservatives, re Republicans or, or independents. Um, there's a lot of concern going on within the community that, you know, there's this very strong but small vocal minority of people who could push politics and kind of society within Williamson County and by extension in Middle Tennessee and, and further um, you know, to a place that they don't necessarily want to be, that to a place that doesn't necessarily represent them and their values. Tell me this. How, how do you think the 2024 presidential election will play out there? It's going to be interesting. There's a lot of energy that was lost from 2020. Um, there's uh, definitely a, a, still a, a big support of President, uh, former President Trump. Um, but the divisions that exist are, you know, I'm not quite sure how they're going to impact that, but Williamson County will, and the Williamson County GOP will have a strong role in the beliefs and kind of the, the, the pressure that's put um, towards support for a political candidate or support of the, uh, the beliefs and ideals that, again, could fuel this uh, further push to the right. Now, you mentioned before that some people have levied threats against you for doing your job in reporting. But sure. Tell me, what has your experience been like reporting on this for four years? It's interesting. The um, the people who I speak with um, sometimes weekly who are, are, again, more who are elected officials or are volunteers 
and kind of out there with the Republican Party, they've all been very nice to me. We've um, I've never had any issues. Um, I've had a lot of access. Um, and, you know, I treat them like a, a normal person and they treat me that way. And and it's fine. It's, again, generally the people who are not really engaged but get riled up um, who are more aggressive. You know, you talked about the school board protests. What are some other ways that far-right ideologies have shown up in Williamson County politics? So one of the uh, pieces or one of the people in the piece is uh, Franklin Pastor Kevin Riggs, who uh, has talked about the uh, what he has said is that Williamson County is the capital of Christian nationalism. And he sees um, that there's a real threat uh, from within the church and politics within the church, politics from the pulpit that could essentially sway lots of moderates to, again, um, kind of fall in line with more extremist beliefs. And what he said is that they, some of these people are attempting to build, quote, the kingdom of Christ. Hmm. You know, as you continue to report on the county, what do you keep an eye out for? Something that I like to keep an eye out on is just how people are responding to really everyday actions within governments and communities, because that's where you're going to see the real kind of extremist movements is that, you know, there, there's always a new target. And sometimes, again, with books, it it's, seems simple. It's just books that kids have in schools. Um, and so it's really kind of keeping an eye on, you know, your county commission, keeping an eye on the, the city councils and just the the boring things to see if, you know, they become targets of, of any particular person or group. Matt Masters is a reporter with the news and contributor with the Nashville scene. You can find the link to his article on this episode's web post at thisisnashville.org. Matt, thank you for being here and thanks for your reporting. Thank you. And if I could just say um, people should check out the article because we did uh, write this cover package along with uh, Betsy Phillips and Eli Modica. And we hope that they will go out and read it. Check out the link. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll celebrate 50 years of jazz music appreciation in Music City on Jazzy 88 WFSK. Are you a Jazzy 88 listener? What do you love about jazz? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kaliole Colonna, and this is Nashville. 50 years ago, jazz music had very little presence on the radio waves here in Nashville. That was until Fisk University radio station WFSK was licensed and took charge of providing jazz to anyone who desired to listen. Now, Jazzy 88, it was the first black-owned FM radio station licensed in Nashville and the first to feature jazz music. It quickly became the anchor of the jazz music community in our city. The station turns 50 this year, so we'll celebrate by learning how it became the hub of jazz in Music City. Let's start with Eric Bass. Bass, he helped start the station back in the 70s. He couldn't join us for the show, but he shared his story. Let's listen. My name is Eric Bass. I was a graduate of Fisk University in 1975, and I was with the inaugural radio staff at Fisk University. My family 
became the first African-American broadcasters in the United States in 1954, opening up an AM radio station in the Detroit market called WCHB. At that point, we were the first station in the Detroit market that targeted the black community, which was a vastly growing population demographic coming out of the, the South, the Great Migration, up to the northern markets uh, like Chicago, Detroit, Indianapolis, etc. My brother and I, my sister, we all grew up in it. So when we came to Fisk, Bobby and I already had a background in radio. Fisk had an opportunity to apply and acquire a radio license. We knew that could be something that could be realistically obtained because of our contacts. You know, my family was sending uh, the record library to us. We had the cart machines that they sent us, the, the transmitter that they shipped down to us. Everything to physically get the station on the air. That first year and a half when, when we were off the air, just talking about it. Oh, we're going to be have a radio station. Everybody was like, yeah, okay. But, you know, like, I got to go to class. <laughs> when we first went on, we would go on for a couple hours, and then we, we'd be off for a couple hours, you know. It was... There was a lot of inconsistency, you know. Sometimes we didn't know we were off the air, you know. It'd be like, in, in, until the phone would ring, somebody would say, what happened, you know. <laughs> that first two years that radio station started, it was like a little cult. The radio station was its own little world, and everybody on campus would say, oh, that's the radio station, people. And we were like our own little entity. Like you had all the little... You had fraternities, and you had the sororities, and you know you had the athletic teams, etc. And it was a very close-knit uh, hodgepodge of people who were there from the ground level. Even though there was no actual radio station to go to, they felt this thing could happen. That type of continuity and that feeling created a unity amongst those first 10 people. And that's why we were so successful. My next guest, who you may have heard laughing in that recording, is WFSK's general manager, Sharon Kay. Sharon, thanks for being here. Welcome. Of course. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you. It sounded like you had a lot of fun recording that interview. I with did. Eric. I did. Uh, it When I tracked uh, Eric down, uh, he was so excited to do this uh, interview. And it's part of a, a series of interviews I'm trying to capture with people that can still remember things before they get too old and forget. <laughs> so he he just, his family was so instrumental. And because they had the broadcasting in their blood, it was almost divine mm -hmm. that those two, him and his brother Bobby, are just, if, if it had not been for, for them, their family, they already had the expertise because they had grown up as little kids in the studio with parents and grandparents. If grandma and grandpa owned the station guess who gets to run around and do whatever they want to do? The they, yes, most definitely. And that's what they did. So Granny is, uh, I think she's a Fisk alum. Grandfather is a, a graduate of Meharry. Uh, so they're they're like family. And knowing that she wanted to send their her grandsons to that institution helped that place in a thousand ways. Without it, I don't know if they would have gotten things off the ground the way they did. But they did. And you have been at Jazzy 88 for 18 years. What was the station like when you first started? <laughs> Lord, I have photos. Uh, <laughs> it, it was uh, different. And I I am a longtime broadcaster. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I, I see this industry as different than what the station was doing. 
And I have, I'm kind of a, I won't say law and order, but I do like order. And I think that it was important for us to project uh, a positive image, uh, one that is encouraging to the community because of the, the history of the station going really back to 1969. It was a struggle in Nashville. The black community here did not own things like they do today. In 69, Nashville was an entirely different place. Mm-hmm. So to me, I saw the station as different, not a place where I can go and hang out and play music and be this and that. I saw it as an institution in the history of Nashville. So to me, that's that's all I can think about all the time. Now, I understand you started digging into the station's history. I am. As you found more things out, what, what stood out to you? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to go deeper into the fact that take my head back to 69, because I had only heard the students, the former students, talk about 73. But when I discovered some articles and some things about 69, the students were started talking about it then and wanted to get it together then that was a process, less alone for college students. If you are a professional today trying to get a radio station and do a license and get a license and all that, you have to hire an attorney. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the children and, and the, the faculty and staff that assisted them were very, very helpful in getting this done. It was amazing to me that they were able to do it. And Fisk is really not known for being the wealthiest institution in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it has been uh, a struggle. But I see the the future is bright. So this I had to take the patina off the station so people could see that the original call letters were WRFN and they changed the call letters in 83 to uh, WFSK so they would identify with Fisk. And it has had a, a place in the heart of, of a lot of people in this town. And for that reason, because a lot of them have been on the air there, for that reason, I said, I got to do something about this. I got to put a shine on this place because it represents black Nashville. You started in early 2000s. What was your vision for Jazzy 88 back then? That we would survive. (laughs) (laughs) That we would survive and and just thrive in, in terms of the community feeling good about it. The community had to feel good about it. I've been covering Nashville for years and some years. And there's not always been a time when the community could feel good about things here in the city. But that station has been the voice of the community. We're the heart and soul. We sit directly in the middle of Nashville, in North Nashville, in, in the hub of, of a lot of things in the city. So we had to reflect that and also not lose our identity in the process. We didn't want to instantly become we're only serving this population or this one. We had to continue to keep our, our banner high for our African-American community, and that's been the focus the entire time. How did the jazz community react to some of the changes Different. you brought in there? Well, we're, our format is smooth and contemporary, okay. which is, you know, it's like a, a, it's a segment of the jazz world. And at some point, you know, there was a, a separation between us and the straight aheads, and they went over there, we went over here, and I'm like, this is crazy. Uh, the, the straight ahead and contemporary was never blended, and I blended it because I needed those audiences to come together. And when you go on tours and cruises, the smooth jazz and the contemporary jazz people go. They travel. Mm-hmm. They're out there. And you would see the same people. So I'm like, oh, I'm so I'm going to put these pieces together. And it's like... Um, you, you, some people don't want gravy to get on their other food, you know. When I mean, that's that's how it was. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, I had to parse it 
you know, in such a way that it, it, it made sense. Did you make it a priority to work with, like, local jazz musicians? Oh, I made it a priority to work with any and everybody because I need them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're the, when we have our fun drives, because we're a nonprofit, as you well know, they uh, are our voices on the air, and they help us raise the money. So they love the station, and we love them, and we play their music and support them and say great things about them. Who wouldn't want that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake Colonna. We're talking this hour about the legacy of Fisk's radio station, Jazzy 88 WFSK, as the station celebrates 50 years on air. Tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, my next guest is a nationally known jazz musician. I'd like to welcome guitarist Les Sabler to the show. Les. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Now, you're a big supporter of Jazzy 88. Why is this station so important to you? Well, I moved to Nashville in 2014. I was living in Florida for many years, and there was a radio station there that was the same format that uh, so many amazing opportunities came my way because of the presence I had from having my music on the air. And they would promote a lot of shows. I would uh, headline big festivals down there, and it helped build me into a very strong regional uh, presence. And Fisk, uh, or WFSK, had been playing my music before I moved here, and when I got here and let Sharon know that I was new in town, uh, it was a great fit because uh, having a radio station that would play my music and help me build an audience locally, I didn't really know anybody here other than some people that might have heard me on the radio, uh, gave me that opportunity to get my feet on the ground. And I've been a big supporter of the station ever since. I go to their fundraisers and contribute in many ways. And uh, it's been wonderful for me uh, getting to be closer to Sharon personally and professionally and uh, doing whatever I can to promote the station, which I think is a really important component of the community. How has the station benefited the local jazz community? Well, having music of this genre available on the air, and there's not too many jazz stations that are on the air anymore. Most of them are internet-based. <clears throat> We're lucky to have one here, and uh, it, it creates more interest in that style of music for the public so that whether you're on the air as an artist or just performing as an artist in that style of music, uh, there's more interest as a result. Now, as I mentioned, you are an accomplished jazz guitarist. Let's listen to a sample of your music. Here is Isel's Dance from your album Tranquility, which went to number five on the Billboard chart. Let's listen. So I hear a lot of Earl Clue in that. 
big influence on me. Who else are some of your big influences? Well, one of my favorite records of all time goes back to 1971, George Benson, White Rabbit, which mm -hmm. had Earl Clue uh, with him on that record. I still perform one of the songs from that album in all my shows called Elmar, which was a duet between the two of them. But George Benson, I saw him in a small club in Montreal before he was really popular, where I, I grew up in Montreal. and. That night that I saw him, I've got a vivid memory, uh, and that really sparked me to get serious with the guitar. And Larry Carlton, also huge fan of his, going back to his days with the Crusaders, and that played a part in me moving here, knowing that that he had been living here for a long time. He moved here from L.A., and I figured if it was a comfortable place for him to live, then I should fit in. And Amazingly enough, his son Travis, who's a real accomplished bassist, is on my new record. Mm. So, uh, and I've met Larry a few times. So I'd say, you know, George Benson, Larry Carlton, Lee Rittenauer, and a lot of the jazz legends, Joe Pass and uh, Kenny Burrell. Uh, Grant Ken, yeah, Green. I have a I have a tribute to Kenny Burrell on my new album, A Child Is Born. I did a, a rendition of one of his most popular songs with a little uh, new arrangement, but it was based on one of his recordings. So I, I followed and studied all of the great jazz guitarists. Now, you know, a lot of folks wouldn't think that Nashville is the place for jazz music, you know, and you had a choice whether to to move out here. You were just saying, why? what were other reasons why you chose to come to Nashville? Well, my sister lives in Knoxville, not too far away, and we're very close, so that made it convenient. And when I was leaving Florida, it was a toss-up between going to Los Angeles or to move here. And uh, cost of living, better traffic patterns here, and uh, just a wonderful music scene here. All genres are represented here. I, I knew there's excellent jazz musicians here. Not as big a scene maybe as New York or L.A., but uh, it did have a presence. And uh, I, I felt it was really a, a great place for me to be. Now, Sharon, how does it feel to have a musician like like Les, be such a big supporter. I loved stage. him before he moved here, and because uh, we would talk on the phone. I have relationships, uh, phone relationships, and in person. I feel like the the psychiatrist in my office because you know they hmm. they lay out a lot of stuff on me. You know their trials and tribulations, and they couldn't get airplay and this and that. The stories hearing this all over the country, I would listen because that's what I've been doing all my life is just listening to people. And I I saw patterns, and I said these people need some love because our our uh, genre was going through a, a very traumatic change in that corporate got out of this music. Period. Mm -hmm. Pulled the plug. Good night, and uh, never to be talked about again. And there were so few stations. And what, what has kept, to be honest, and people don't know this, and I've been paying attention, very close attention, but it was HBCU college radio stations, black uh, stations across the com country at the HBCUs that just kept it going and kept it going and kept it going, whether it was popular or not. And that, that's a tough one. But to me, if you have a name like Music City, and we know the Jubilee Singers and all that uh, spiritual history. But you cannot have a um, a music city without having jazz in it. Mm -hmm. It's like going to a buffet and you only have one meat on the line. Now, that's not a buffet, okay? Mm -hmm. I want some choices. <laughs> so we had to be that choice. And I'm, I'm trying to rise above 
whatever people's notion of what, you know, it is. Because we have fun. We do. We're not boring and we're not stuffy. We have fun. Look, okay. Some of that fun shows in the community engagement that you all have been doing over the years. I mean, you have created the Fisk Jazz and Food Festival. What was your goal for that? <laughs> to have fun. Uh, <laughs> I wanted uh, us to produce a festival. It's WFSK Presents, the Food and the Fisk Food and Jazz Festival. I had several thoughts in mind. The reason why I created it, among the reasons, was I wanted to make sure that we're branded in terms of events. I don't want to be mixed in with R&B and hip-hop. That's not what I want. That Other people do that, and they do a mighty fine job. But for us, I wanted us to stick to our format so people can get used to it. And then they can support it, because they'll come out, you know, we, our event is free. Um, but to me, it also solidifies the music. It solidifies Nashville. And people in the industry have all over the country have said to me, thank God that y'all are there mm-hmm. because it keeps our music uh, in the minds and hearts of people that live in Nashville. Otherwise, you wouldn't hear it. Well, you won't hear it. Not you're not going to hear it, and so for us, it's, you know, it's like a mission. Does that make sense? Yes, it is, ma'am. It okay. sure does. Now I understand that this summer is going to be the first festival since the pandemic. Yes. How excited are you? We about are that? back, honey. <laughs> <laughs> we are back. Uh, well, I'm excited. I'm very. I'm like I probably won't sleep for a couple of days before, and it's just a dream for the community. I, you know, they want this, mm. and they've asked me and asked me and asked me for three years. And at first I wasn't going to do it. I said, these people in this town, they don't they get so much stuff. They don't. Think. And then people kept coming to me and they kept calling me. And, you know, I, I listen to what the listeners say, believe it or not, and uh, and contributors as well. But I just felt like, you know, doggone it, we're going to do this because nobody else. This is our stuff. And we're going to claim it, name it and claim it. And also for it's a good PR for the university. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I don't work for that department on the campus, <laughs> but I do this, you know, to me, I said, this is good for Fisk. I said, people can come up here, you know, be on the campus, you know, sit in amongst all these um, um, uh, historic places and things, bring their lawn chair, have a good time, enjoy some great music. Who wouldn't want to do that? What can folks expect to be going to Well, I tell you, one of the things that they're going to expect is to hear Les. <laughs> He's one of my performers, mm-hmm. and I'm so excited. I have two national. Uh, Nashville performers. Les is one, and I also have saxophonist Dana Robbins. The other three musicians are traveling musicians and nationally known names. So I mix it up a little bit. Uh, And I have such good relationships with a lot of these people. I have to say, I'm their auntie. I'm Auntie Sharon Kay. This auntie calling, I only have such and such in my budget. I mean, that's how you have to do when you're not real wealthy. Mm -hmm. And they just want to be seen and heard in Nashville. Does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. So we're delighted to have um, uh, award-winning flautist Kim Scott come, as well as um, international recording artists. And uh, he's been in the business 30 years. Uh, Pianist, keyboardist Bob Baldwin, and our special guest is trumpeter Joey Somerville. So we're going to have some some funky jazz. We're going to have some fabulous uh, uh, guitar and with Les. We're going to have some great saxophone, and all of these groups are coming with their full bands. I have never been able to have their full bands before. So our audience is in for a treat. Sounds like a big, oh, honey, it's going to be a good time. Oh, it is. It Le- is. Les, what are you excited about to perform at this year's festival? 
It's going to be a great audience, and I'm going to be very inspired. I've got a five-piece group, and uh, we do variety of songs from my recordings, and uh, I, I know it's going to be a wonderful time. People better get themselves ready. Sharon Kay is the general manager of Jazzy 88 WFSK, which is celebrating 50 years on air this year. She was joined by acclaimed jazz guitarist Les Sabler. I want to thank you both for being with us of today. Course. Of course. Thanks for having me. We'll see you at the festival. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> we have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll dive into the local jazz scene and learn how the next generation of jazz musicians is being nurtured here in Music City. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colonna, and this is Nashville. It's a Tuesday afternoon at the Nashville Jazz Workshop on Buckhannon Street. It's the first day of the summer student jazz set. Let it die down for a minute, clear the air, and then you take off, and then you just deal with just... That's Laurie Meacham, leading the students through an exercise. She's a jazz pianist and composer who founded the Nashville Jazz Workshop back in the late 90s. Laurie's still at it, putting on workshops like this one every summer. That trumpet you heard came from our next guest, Miles Hall. They're a member of the Nashville Youth Jazz Ensemble and a rising senior at Hume Fogg Academic Magnetic Magnet School. Miles, welcome to This Is Nashville. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So let me get this right. That was Night in Tunisia you were playing, right? Yes, sir. Okay, just meant to make sure I get my chops are <laughs> tight. How is the summer jazz workshop going? Um, it's incredible. It's a really amazing opportunity to connect with other passionate students of jazz and also to work with some professionals, not only from the workshop, but from all over the world. How does it feel to be in these, you know, to be learning in moments like this with your peers, but also professionals? Um, it's really a unique experience that not a lot of people get to have. I think it is something unique um, to Nashville. Uh, because it's just such a center of music and getting the opportunity to learn from so many different perspectives, whether that is of my peers or of the professionals around me, it is really inspiring. All right, Miles, I have to ask you, who is your favorite jazz trumpeter and what was the album or song that got you hooked? Man, I would probably have to be between Lee Morgan and Clifford Brown. 
uh, for Lee Morgan, Hocus Pocus. Okay. Um, it's from his Sidewinder album. Yes. But just Clifford Brown. Um, I had a friend who played a lot like him, so really listening to his stuff and getting reminded of her really is why I listen to him. And Clifford Brown's music is very, very just beautiful, cinematic, and romantic, I like to call it. Mm-hmm. All right. So a lot of younger people, they think jazz is old music, old people, you know? They, they think it's for boomers. Let's say that, you know, and you are a teenager. You love the genre. How have you been able to introduce jazz to some of your peers? And tell me how they responded. A lot of them don't realize that jazz is all around them in the movies they watch and the shows they watch, but particularly in the video games they play. Hmm. Um, there is an amazing video called the Nintendification of Jazz, and it is all about how video game music is going to be the new standards for jazz. There's things like Bob on Battlefield, who are, which are becoming standards in high schools, which come from video games, but are inspired by the late 1950s and 40s music. Games like Cuphead, which has big band soundtrack, they, they don't quite realize how influential it is to our culture now. You know, I was listening to jazz music as a kid. My parents would play it. It would go over my head. I remember asking my dad, who was playing John Coltrane's Naima, to change the channel. And he said, it's sophisticated music. You have to learn how to listen. Well, I learned in the mid-90s, early mid-90s, because hip-hop was sampling a lot of jazz. Mm -hmm. That's how I got introduced to it. Then I started collecting records, and I went down the rabbit hole, and I'm glad that I'm there. I think, you know, a lot of young people who are listening to hip-hop you hear a lot of Kendrick Lamar. That's a lot of jazz in that. Now, my next guest is a jazz vocalist in town. Let's take a listen. Crystal Miller, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And thank you for singing that version of Aquas de Marco or Martyrs of March by the famous Antonio Carlos Jobim. Yes. So tell me this. How did you find your way to jazz music? Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll make a long story short. Okay. So there was a, a co-worker a coworker who saw an article in the in the in the paper this was obviously a while ago uh, for a an institute that was new to Nashville and turns out it was the Nashville Jazz Institute uh, now known as the Nashville Jazz Workshop she said i think you really need to check this out and so i went and uh, i've been affiliated with uh, with jazz and the Nashville Jazz Workshop since then but i also I also have jazz mentors with whom I started singing. They taught me the first four songs, four mm. jazz songs that I that I knew, and that's uh, the Easy Jazz Quartet. I started singing with them as well around the same time. You're a Tennessee native, right? I am a Tennessee native. Did you grow up listening to jazz? I grew up listening to R&B. My father tried. He tried. He had the albums, and, and so, but I wasn't ready. Mm -hmm. I wasn't ready, and so it wasn't until... 
until starting at the jazz workshop that I really got into jazz. Now you work with the jazz workshop, and as we yes. heard, you offer classes for that offers classes for adults and students. Yes. Why did you decide to lend your talents to help teach people about jazz? Here is why. I'm glad you asked that question, and I, I wanted to lend my talents to to teach people about jazz in particular because. It seems like it's such a mystery to people. They think, oh, well, I've got to know how to scat in order to be a jazz a jazz vocalist, or I have to sing this way, I have to sing like Ella. But I needed people to know that that wasn't necessarily true. We've had them. And I wanted to teach people to find their own voice because it, it took me a while to find mine, and I wanted to help people find theirs. Mm. My next guest is one of the founding members of the Nashville Jazz Workshop. Larry Seaman is the communications director for NJW. Larry, thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Now, you know, tell me this. What was the jazz scene like here back in the 90s before the Jazz Workshop got started? We had a lot of wonderful jazz musicians in Nashville. We always have. Uh, the jazz scene has been very rich, but it, it did not have a coherence. It didn't have a home. There would be a, an occasional club that would come and go, and for a while that club would be a hub for jazz in Nashville. Um, and then it, it might go out of business or change format or whatever. So jazz didn't have a home. So when the Nashville Jazz Workshop started, that was really significant because it was a, a center, a focal point. And as a nonprofit, it did not have to depend on commercial, um, just commercial factors. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, we have to have money, we have to raise money, but um, it wasn't quite, uh, the commercial imperatives weren't strong. So we could have some continuity. Tell me this, what makes learning how to play jazz different from other forms of music? Well, I think of jazz as a foundational music because um, when you learn to play jazz, you can do most anything. It, mm. uh, it's an interesting music because it has a structure to it. A lot of people don't think it has much structure. They may hear it and feel like people are just making things up. But there's a lot of structure to it that you have to learn. And then there's a ton of creativity so you really learn how the music works, and then you learn to spread your wings and, and access your own creativity. And that's a powerful thing. A person becomes independent as a musician. Um, sometimes, um, sometimes we have a band to play with. Sometimes we don't. We want to play for ourselves or our, our friends. So being a, a jazz musician, you can operate in many, many settings. Now, you know, ask, tell me this. How was the jazz community, how was jazz accepted in the country music scene? Well, a long time ago, um, I, I would hear stories from our, our dear uh, late friend, B.G. Adair, that, um, uh, who, who did, worked a lot in country sessions. Um, and she recalls having to sort of hide the fact that she was a jazz musician. And she was mm -hmm. a virtuoso jazz musician, but uh, she didn't want people, the record producers, to find out that she was a uh, great jazz player because somehow, I don't know what they thought. Maybe they thought that, that jazz was so complicated and, and you would just play too many notes or 
play weird, funny chords or something like that. I, so it, it wasn't that well accepted. I think that's I think that's changed uh, now. I, I believe it has as well. I understand you have a really quick story about a famous guitarist who in Nashville. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> The uh, and, and I will credit this to a wonderful documentary that uh, uh, that was made about the Carter family. When the Carter family originally came, was ready to move to Nashville in 1950 to join the Grand Old Opry, uh, they wanted to bring their guitar player with them. And the powers that be at the Opry said, "No, you can't bring this guy. He's too jazzy." Hmm. And they said, "Well, no, you know, we we're going to bring him. He he comes or we don't." And so. Chet Atkins came to Nashville along with the Carter family. <laughs> the great Chet Atkins, <laughs> yes. almost denied because right. of from being too jazzy. What you learn every day. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about the local jazz scene with Larry Seaman, Crystal Miller, and Miles Hall. Tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, in the 60s and 70s, many jazz musicians used their music to comment on social justice issues of the time. John Coltrane's Love Supreme and earlier, Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit are examples of songs of protest. Now, Miles, I understand that you look at your music in a similar way, that so tell me, in what ways do you use your music to make a statement? Um, I use it to try to build a sense of community at times where it feels like we are so divided. Um, I went to some of the rallies for gun reform after the Covenant shooting, and oftentimes song were used, was used to help unite and argue for gun reform. Uh, we would stand outside the Capitol and sing as loud as we could. Local artists would come out and play and sing with us to try to unite and fight against something that seems so unfightable. What is it about the power of music that inspires you to do that? It's, the power of music is so, it's, a universal language. No matter what language you speak, no matter where you are from, you are bound to have heard some kind of music, whether that's on the radio or coming from your mom's phone or just a bird tweeting outside your window. It connects us all despite all of our different backgrounds. Um, and really that you unitedness is really inspiring at a time where we're so divided and everybody's so polarized. Crystal, tell me, how can jazz music be transformative to the listener? Jazz music can be transformative to the listener by taking I'm thinking of a I'm thinking of it uh, comparing it to a recipe mm. for food. So mm -hmm. um, jazz music can be transformative by taking the different components, either whether it's vocal or instrumental, and just sitting there listening and thinking it takes you to another place and just letting it take you to another place. Just sitting there and just letting it marinate and letting it resonate with you, it can, it can transform people to another place. Now, Miles, you represent the future. How would you like to see the jazz scene here grow? I'd like to see more youth involvement. I'd like to see more 
educators and more funding for the arts starting earlier, like in middle school, um, many schools only have one band director or no band director and don't even have a music program. So I'd like to see more funding for the arts, especially, and more general respect for it. Crystal, what about you? What do you want to see here in the future of jazz at Nashville? I would love to see, or I would love for jazz to have uh, uh, more more of a presence, uh, be more prominent. It's the jazz scene has grown exponentially since um, since the jazz workshop since the '90s, and it can have more of a presence. And I would love for people to experience it more come out more on thursday nights not just not just on the weekends but so that there can be more jazz offerings come on the on all the nights that it's uh, that it's offered so i can see that for jazz in nashville in the future now tell me this larry where can people go to experience jazz here in town well there are many many places uh, to go um the, uh, at the Jazz Workshop, we have performances um, on the weekends uh, and Thursday evenings, about four or five performances a month. Uh, we have a number of free concerts, free performances for the community. Uh, we have a free concert series in Hadley Park, uh, a free Saturday morning program for young children and families. Uh, and uh, there are many other places. There's uh, Rudy's Jazz Room, uh, it's seven nights a week jazz uh, and uh, the symphony has a jazz series uh, mm-hmm. and many, many other, too numerous to mention, really. But uh, jazz is everywhere in J- Music City. Jazz is everywhere in Music City. And it's definitely everywhere in our hearts. Real quick before we go, favorite jazz album, each of you, Miles? Probably Sidewinder. Sidewinder, Lee Morgan. Mm-hmm. Larry? Ah, Wes Montgomery, the incredible jazz guitar. Okay, <laughs> Crystal. Carmen Sings Monk. Carmen McRae. Carmen McRae. Absolutely. Carmen Sings Monk. That is a fantastic album. I want to thank you all for being here. My guests were Larry Seaman with the Nashville Jazz Workshop, jazz vocalist Crystal Miller, and jazz trumpeter Miles Hall of the Nashville Youth Jazz Ensemble. Thanks to you all for being here. Really appreciate it. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by LaTanya Turner and our new producer, Elizabeth Burton. Welcome, Elizabeth. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Rich Ripani. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.